This podcast is brought to you by JDRF Australia and Sanofi. Hello, I'm Andrew Gagan, and welcome to the T1D Tune-In. T1D used to be known as juvenile diabetes and is often regarded as a disease affecting just children, but they never grow out of it. In this series, we'll hear from adults with type 1 who are leading inspirational lives. We'll also talk to the brilliant researchers working on exciting new treatments and striving to find a cure. Children diagnosed with type 1 diabetes are often told their pancreas has gone to sleep and it no longer makes insulin. In fact, the body's immune system mistakenly destroys the beta cells in the islets of the pancreas that make insulin. What if you could trick the immune system and introduce new islets to start making insulin again? This is the work of a prominent Australian transplant immunologist. One of the things that we've been actually looking at and we're, you know, we've been developing and, and coming ever closer to that, doing first studies in people with islet transplants is, you know, could we engineer an islet cell while it's outside the body before it goes back into a patient to be super protected from that immune attack? Professor Shane Gray is the head of the transplant immunology research team at the Garvin Institute worked on Australia's first clinical islet transplant program. It's a complex but exciting science and Shane is here to explain it. Shane Gray, thanks for joining us on the T1D TuneIn podcast. Thanks Andrew, it's a pleasure to be here. All right, let's start with the basics. What is an islet and what's its function? Yeah, that's a really good question. So first the name, why is it called an islet, right? So that's a kind of a fascinating story. That name came from the 1850s when a uh, German physician was looking down his microscope at sections of a pancreas, like biopsies, and saw these little parts of the pancreas that looked different to everything else. They were like islands. And so the word islets um, came out of that because there are islands in the pancreas. But it turns out they have a really important function. They sense, they literally sense how much sugar is in your blood and then tell your body what to do when the sugar gets too low and when the sugar gets too high. And that's how sugar in the blood is kept at the perfect levels. Okay, so what's going on with type 1 diabetes? Yeah, in type 1 diabetes, what's happening is for reasons that are still not fully clear, the immune system has decided to treat the islet cells like the enemy, like an infection, like a virus or a bacterial pathogen. And the immune system actually swarms physically in around the islet and into the islet and seeks out the cells that make insulin and kills them. So you're researching islet transplantation. How does that work? Yeah, islet transplantation is a relatively new therapy, I guess, in, in for type 1 diabetes. And it's the simple idea is it's like um, a heart transplant or a kidney transplant. But in this case, the cells that make insulin are actually being transplanted into a person with type 1 diabetes to actually restore their own function, if, if you will. Okay. And, and where do you source those? How do you harvest them? And what's that process of actually then transplanting? So in that part, islet transplantation is very similar to organ transplantation. So there are people who you know, donate their organs after death, which is a pretty amazing gift, really, if you think about it. And um, in that process, um, the pancreas is taken from a person, and then the islet cells, those little um, German-named islet cells, are actually extracted out of the pancreas. That takes about 24 hours. It's quite a, it's quite a process. And then the um, islets are actually put into a solution, which is eventually infused into the patient's body. Okay, so you're introducing new islets then. Why wouldn't the body then attack those as it did 
with the existing islets. Yeah, Andrew, you've obviously been paying attention to your immunology lessons from school, <laughs> but uh, that's exactly what happens. So if you don't do anything else, the immune system will uh, recognise that these islets, firstly, you know, are the, the, uh, the cells that they're attacking in the first place from the autoimmune disease, but also there's a second layer, which is what we call allograft rejection. So that's the, the fact that the immune system can actually recognise tissues from someone else's body and actually sees that as foreign as well. So there's two types of attack that are happening. I guess we should take a step back at this point and try to work out why is it that, that type 1 diabetes occurs? In other words, why is it that those people who have it, their body, their immune system is attacking those cells? Yes, that, that is a huge question and you know probably the thing that occupies a huge amount of immunological research around the world today. Like, and that, that's a question that, that goes even beyond type 1 diabetes. It goes into all sorts of what we call the autoimmune conditions. You know, People who might have lupus or um, rheumatoid arthritis, they're all in that same category where the immune system you know, targets the tissues for destruction. So Shane, what understanding do you have of the immune system and, and that response? Yeah, so the, it's very clear that there's, um, there's a genetic component to the disease, to the basis, and there's an environmental component. There's even been a lot of discussion about triggers. You know, people might have heard about viruses and, or even cow's milk and different products that might have triggered the immune response. All of that, the part of the trigger is a bit unclear, and I would say there's no really hard evidence for the, any involvement there. The strong evidence is, though, there is a very big genetic component and a really big um, environmental component. The way the genetics comes together is to determine how the immune system chooses what is the enemy and what is the friend, and the genetics actually affects the... If we think of them as control points in the immune system that determines what we call the activation of an immune response or the processes by which it decides to attack a tissue. And, and we think that the genetics has changed that balance so that there is a kind of a favourable window where the immune system can attack tissues or your own tissues, in this case the islet cells that make insulin. As far as the genetic makeup of people who are predisposed to having diabetes, there is a gene missing or it's been deleted? You know, that's a very big question and it's an excellent question. So what we understand, so type 1 diabetes would be called, in, a, in the scientific medical sense, it would be called a common disease. That has a whole lot of uh, understandings that go with that. But one, one feature of it is that it involves genes, but we would call them common variants of a gene. So everybody is a little bit different, and everybody's different because they have slightly different versions of the same genes. And that's what gives us all our you know, individuality, but it also means physiologically our bodies can tune to different environments. And what we currently think about diseases like type 1 diabetes is these not necessarily you know, things that are broken, it's just that there are versions of genes that come together in context with an environment that now allows autoimmunity to attack. I, I think that's a big concept, right? Yeah, absolutely. So are you talking about the genes then that would regulate the immune response? Yes. Can I, can I give you a very specific example? Sure. So we are, um, have been doing some family studies now using genetics to understand disease in a family with a, a child with type 1 diabetes. And what's interesting is we have actually now, literally this week, worked out that there is a contribution from a very specific gene that is an immune controller gene. It determines how aggressive your immune response is. And this gene variant means the immune response of this person is 10% stronger than, say, a comparative person. 
The interesting thing is that this gene is very common in the Pacific Islands, Papua New Guinea, Australia, um, and some parts of the Indonesian archipelago. And we showed in a paper we reported last year that this gene had been selected in this environment, most likely because it gave an increased immunity, perhaps to local endogenous pathogens. But now we're seeing it um, also contribute to disease, most likely because it gives a stronger immune response. So I guess what I'm trying to give with that very complex example is that something that is good and useful in one context can become, we call it maladaptive, but you, you sort of get the sense of what we're saying. It can contribute to a disease in another sense under different sets of conditions. So is this the way you're approaching potential treatment for people with type 1? We've all heard of genetic engineering, genetic manipulation, gene therapy. Is that the path you're taking? Yes, and, and there's two levels to that. One is, imagine this. So the exciting thing on the one hand about that story you know, we were just discussing about the involvement of this Oceanian gene variant is that that gene variant controls a pathway for which a drug already exists. It's already FDA approved and, and it's used in other conditions. So now it might mean that in the for subsets of patients who have that specific gene set up, there's actually a drug that could be very useful. By having this type of understanding, we're talking about personalized medicine. We're starting to think, hey, you know, maybe we could help people in very specific ways where we couldn't before. And then the other element is if you understand these genetics and if things are awry, maybe we can use newer technologies to actually fix those. Are you talking about potentially treating people who already have type 1 or perhaps targeting children that are more than likely to develop it but still have functioning beta cells? See, that's, a, that's also a brilliant thought and that is something very much on the minds of people. So if you think about what happens in cancer where there's more and more information about certain genes that we would call them predisposed to types of cancer and so you can actually sit there and either be on the lookout or have you know the idea of could we do things before the cancer happens? As we gain more understanding about the genetics that lead to type 1 diabetes, that then becomes, you know, we can start thinking about those sorts of questions. Could we use this as a screening tool or a test to predict, you know, maybe not even whether you'll get type 1 diabetes, but could this help us understand what type of complications you might get? And that would also be really you know, very useful to um, help people manage their diabetes. So really your aim then? is to develop a death-defying islet. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so one of the things we learned, a really fascinating train of thought, was we were looking at the genetics of what happens to islet cells when they are attacked by the immune system, which mm. is what happens in type 1 diabetes. And one of the things we found is they contributed to the inflammatory response, so they were kind of not passive players. They were actually helping the immune system kill themselves, which is kind of paradoxical and obviously unhelpful. But also we found that they actually express genes whose natural role is to be anti-inflammatory and protective. And so we suddenly thought, hey, there's actually a tussle going on here at the islet. So the plan is, could we use that information to with gene therapy approaches to actually make a super islet that would be impervious to immune attack? That was my original thought, is that how are you going to overcome rejection from the body, from the immune system? How would you stop the immune system from destroying the cells that you've introduced that it's already done. Look, we touched on that before, talking about you know the rejection process and the autoimmune process after islet transplantation. And you were correct to say the immune system does attack again. Mm. What happens now is that, as for other organ transplants, people have to 
receive immunosuppression. So powerful drugs to stop that immune attack. And so obviously that's not optimal in, in the case of you know, a therapy for a young child, for instance, right? Because there are side effects. Yes, because there are side effects. Mm. So one of the things that we've been actually looking at and we're, you know, we've been developing and, and coming sort of ever closer to that doing first studies in people with islet transplants is you know, could we engineer an islet cell while it's outside the body before it goes back into a patient to be super protected from that immune attack. And, and these are the sort of studies that we have going ongoing right now. So Shane, at this point, you're only doing these transplantations with adults. Why is that? The immunosuppression that people need to receive to have an islet transplant is the same as somebody received a heart transplant or a kidney transplant. So very powerful. You know, in the long term, the drugs themselves can have effects on your kidneys. You know, obviously your immune system is susceptible to um, opportunistic infections and so forth because it's like having HIV in a sense, right? So you've got to be very carefully managed. The, in a sense, the cost-benefit ratio, you know, a young person going on immunosuppression for a long term before the therapy had really been tested you know, seemed like you know, not the right choice at that time. These parameters are actually changing as we advance the technology. Yeah, when well, you talk about change, you're preparing for phase one human trials obviously with, with adults. So this involves engineering these islet cells then. Yeah, it's very uh, Star Trekky, right? It's yeah. like we're going to use what we call gene therapy. So where it's actually a neat technology. So viruses are basically the masters of invading our cells. They've been doing it for billions of years. They know exactly how to do it. The technology is essentially we take a virus, we take everything nasty out of it, and we put good things in, in this case, you know, the gene therapy, the therapeutic payload, we call it, that we want to deliver to a cell. And then we use the viral tricks that invade cells. But now instead of delivering you know, viral proteins to make more virus, they're going to be delivering our gene therapy product and make the cells super protected. Yeah, okay. It's a benign vector, if you like. Yeah. And it, then it, but you pack it full of the goodness. Yes, that's it. <laughs> All right. What, do you have a time frame? Yeah, so right now, these things take a long time. So we've spent probably eight to 10 years working up the preclinical models to show that the technology is effective, that it gives benefit, that it can actually improve islet transplant outcomes, and that it can do that without heavy or with only minimal immunosuppression. So all the proof of concept is there. We spent the last two or three years reformulating drug, if you will, so that it's in a, a package and a... Um, a situation that is safe to put into people, and that's all finished. And so now we're actually building up to the next stage, which is actually testing it in human cells in a model of human transplantation that will be the final stage that will, you know, before we go into people. This is fantastic, of course, and uh, brilliant as far as you and your colleagues are concerned, but it, it comes at a cost. Driving this is funding. Where's that coming from? Yes, funding. Funding is the fuel for research, right? I mean, that's the truth. So, you know, the government is the heavy lifter in this space. So these are these through the NHMRC and the Australian Research Council and the Department of Ageing. There is lots of funding for medical research, but it's you know, competitive. And, uh, you know, you've got to have a, a compelling idea that's better than everyone else's and you're competing in an open field where you know, a type 1 diabetes research project or development of a clinical concept is competing against clinical concepts and basic research in all other spaces. To be fair, that's where organisations like the JDRF are really uh, fundamental. What their specialty is, is that they drive research 
into spaces where they can see the benefit, but that are maybe too early for the big government sort of heavy lifting grants to pick up. And I think they sort of drive kind of, in fact, you know, to be truthful, it was the JDRF that funded the first clinical trial that I was a part of that team in Australia that showed that islet transplantations into adults could actually have a therapeutic benefit. Do you need to get Big Pharma on board? Obviously, they need to see the commercial imperative there, but clearly given that more people are developing type 1 diabetes, you would, you would think that the, the imperative is there. Yes, the imperative is there. So the first stage is the, you know, the experimental clinical trials, as they're called, where you, you show basic efficacy that an islet transplant can give a person with type 1 diabetes some benefit. It can improve their glycemic control. In, in the case that it's practiced now, um, one of the big focuses is on, is on a condition called hyperglycemic unawareness and showing that the islet transplant reverses that. And, and in those, you know, with those criteria, it's doing very well. And so really the, the big roadblocks are now are having enough cells to transplant into people and to find ways to reduce that need for heavy immunosuppression. And this is now, with the research in this space, this is where pharma you know, more commercial entities are starting to become interested because obviously this opens up the, the treatment to lots and lots of people, which obviously then gives it the viability to put in investment. Shane, let's throw forward 10 years. What conversation are you and I going to be having about this? Is this inevitable do you think that this will work yes <laughs> i honestly look I, I think that you have to look to the past for the proof of concept and then the future i guess you know we what's that thing we under we overestimate the past and underestimate the future we already know that in animal models you can take an islet cell and put it into a recipient that's diabetic and cure the diabetes right we've actually now transplanted that concept of transplantation to people to adults with type 1 diabetes i know it's a limited group of people in a sense but the concept is robust we are able to take islet cells from an organ donor and put them into a patient and we're getting good improved glycemic controls now there's all sorts of caveats around that we could argue about but the concept is working the next concept that we're waiting to apply with the mice models is that there are lots of New therapy or new modalities and treatments, for instance, some of the ones that we're working on, where we are showing that you can do that without needing immunosuppression. You follow my gist, and now that all needs to be translated into a human, and I believe that's going to happen. I think the third thing that is really exciting, or the second part of that, so that's immunosuppression, the second part of that is where we're going to get all these islet cells from. And there's amazing work going on using either islets from pigs um, as donors or islet cells that have been grown from human stem cells. And they've already been put in mice and showing that they can cure. They've been put into non-human primates and shown that they can cure. So I think that, it, look, think of it as a sort of a staged portfolio. So in, the, in 10 years, we might be talking about these things going into patients. Shane, that is really exciting treatment for the future and you sound confident, which is really reassuring. What about prevention, given more and more people are developing it? Take us down that road as far as we've mapped the human genome. What does that unlock? Yeah, I think that's really just so much excitement and promise in that space. I think, you know, we could have a peek over the fence into cancer in this area and see what's happening there because that's very exciting and I think that's a good um, marker of where we could go with diseases like type 1 diabetes. In cancer sequencing of cancer genomes and the patient genomes is unlocking molecular pathways and cues but essentially it gives us kind of roadmaps and understanding of and we, where we can start thinking about prediction of cancer onset 
I think that as we develop these technologies and have sequencing throughout the community and we can start building these types of genetic pictures of what really drives type 1 diabetes, we'll have those same we'll be able to develop those same sort of predictive algorithms which will enable us to pick out people early and then offer you know, assistance at the earlier stages, which I think will change the trajectory of the disease. Yeah, you, you could peek into someone's future health. Yes, and then, you know, and it could be as simple as you know, an endo- visit to the endocrinologist once a year just to get that beta cell function test, all very simple stuff. And as soon as the early signs are there, now that's a different opportunity for therapeutic intervention. You know, it's different to be in early versus late as we are now because now, unfortunately, we, we don't know someone has diabetes till. They have diabetes, right? Shane, it's been fabulous to talk to you. I've learnt a lot. Congratulations on your work so far. Good luck with what's coming. Professor Shane Gray, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. If you'd like to find out more about JDRF Australia or get involved with their various initiatives supporting the Australian T1D community, visit their website, jdrf.org.au. For all the latest updates on T1D research, search JDRF Australia on Facebook or follow them on Instagram under at JDRFAUS. And keep an ear out for more episodes in our T1D tune-in series wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Until then, I'm Andrew Gagan. Thanks for listening. Views expressed in this podcast are broadcast for informational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice. Consult your team of healthcare professionals for health or personal advice that is right for you.